the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through 1 Peter. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. They use their authority in an oppressive, abusive way. And their great ones exercise authority over them. He says, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Have you ever dreamed of being royalty or president? Most of us have at some point in our lives, but our understanding of what it means to be in that position is often tainted by our selfish motives. Instinctively, we want to have power so we can arrange things to better serve ourselves. One of the beautiful things about God's kingdom is that he flips that structure on its head. As Pastor Gary will point out in today's message, in the kingdom of God, the first are last and the lowly are lifted up. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 5, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. You make it a joy for me to feed, lead, love, and protect, because I know enough horror stories from enough pastors, because we get together, and, and we share, and, and I know enough horror stories and war stories from other pastors to be grateful, you make, it a, you make it easy for me to pastor because you all are a great flock, and I say that sincerely, and so it's a joy to, to pastor, to shepherd. Um, and that's to your credit, and I thank God for you. And these are the main things that pastors are called to do, to faithfully feed, lead, love, and protect. Now, Peter is writing here, obviously, and he knows by first-hand instruction, what it means to be a shepherd. Because if you remember, after Peter had denied even knowing Christ three times, there's a scene at the end of John's Gospel, John chapter 21, where Jesus restores Peter into public ministry again. And there's this tender conversation that he has with Peter along the bank of the Sea of Galilee, in John chapter 21, where Jesus just simply says to Peter three times, gives him the same number of opportunities to acknowledge him as he did deny him. Jesus says to him, do you love me? Peter goes, you know that I love you. Do you love me? You know that I love you. Do you love me? You know that I love you. And there's a 
there's kind of a play on words with the word love there. That's not the main point. But every time that Jesus asked Peter if he loved him, Jesus responded with a simple instruction. The first time he said, do you love me? Jesus responded after Peter said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. The next time Jesus said, do you love me? And Peter said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, tend my sheep. The third time when Jesus said, do you love me? And Peter said, yes, you know that I love you. Jesus said, again, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Those are the three things Jesus said. And again, the emphasis is on feeding twice, two out of three times. Jesus said, feed. And then he said, tend. And that word tend can mean all those other things, lead them, love them, protect them. So Peter's writing here from firsthand knowledge, like, yeah, I kind of got schooled by Jesus. So, you know, I, so for the rest of the elders, and I'm one of you, for the rest of the pastors, I'm one of you, I just want you to know, it's important that you feed them, you lead them, you love them, you protect them, because that's what being a real shepherd is. It's also important to point out here, and, I, and you know, I think this is critical. I don't think this is just, you know, semantics. Every time Jesus said in John 21, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, and then feed my sheep. It was always my, this is Jesus speaking, my lambs, my sheep, my sheep. And the reason I point that out is because Peter heard that and he emphasized it here in verse two, when he, look at your Bibles, when he says, shepherd the flock of God. It's God's flock. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with pastors over the years who refer to the congregation where they pastor as my people. And it bothers me. And I just want to publicly say, you are not my people. I mean, I'm your people and I'm your peeps, you know. (laughs) But you are not my people. You don't belong to me. You know, the church belongs to Jesus. It is his church. It is the flock of God. Every time Jesus exhorted Peter in John 21, he said, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my sheep. Okay. It was always mine. The ownership is the Lord's. And Peter emphasizes it here when he says, shepherd the flock of God. He doesn't say to any pastor here, shepherd your flock. It's not a pastor's flock. The flock, the sheep, belong to the Lord. Pastors are just serving under the Lord to help what? Feed, lead, love, and protect God's sheep. And it's an important distinction here because, you know, uh, and I know know some of this I'm actually just kind of preaching to myself, and, and if there were a group of pastors here, maybe this would be more applicable, but just so that you know what Scripture says relative to pastors in general, my role specifically, you don't belong to me. You belong to the Lord. You are the Lord's sheep. You are the Lord's flock here. And I think that's just simply an important distinction here because he says, he uses the word entrusted in verse three, nor as being Lord's over those entrusted to you. It's a stewardship thing. It's a caring thing. It's a loving and feeding thing, but no people belong to the pastor And that's why he also reminds in verse 4 about the chief shepherd. Because it's saying clearly, Jesus is the chief shepherd. He is over all the flock. He is over 
every other shepherd, small s, and pastors are just supposed to serve under the Lord. Now, that leads to number two. One of the other exhortations he says here is to serve willingly. He says uh, in the end of verse two, where he says, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving, that's the key word, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, willingly to serve willingly. Now, hopefully, whatever position God has called you to, you know, whatever you do for a living, whatever job you do for, hopefully you are not doing it under compulsion. Hopefully you are doing what you do because you're doing it willingly. But Peter says here, especially for pastors, you better be doing this willingly and not under compulsion. I mean, I mean, how, how thrilling would it be if you came up for prayer and you're like, Pastor G, I just have this, oh, you again? Oh. And I don't even want to be here. What's your prayer need? I mean, you know, how joyful would that be? So hopefully pastors are doing it willingly. Hopefully you're doing what you do willingly, okay? Nobody should be doing it under compulsion. Now that isn't to say that there are some days. There are some days for all of us. You don't really want to be doing what you're doing. Maybe just a bad day or, you know, you're just going through something and you're like, I don't, I don't know if I really want to be here. I don't know if I really want to do this. Those, hap- that, those days happen every once in a while, no matter what you do. But hopefully on a consistent basis, what you're doing, what you're called to, should be something that you want to do willingly. You want to do it joyfully. And particularly as pastors, <laughs> Peter's exhorting here, you better be doing this willingly, not under compulsion. You ought to be doing this as unto the Lord. By the way, the same Greek word for compulsion about not doing something by compulsion is used in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7 about giving. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9 7, nobody should give under compulsion. If you want to give in the offering, if you want to give to the Lord, nobody should ever do it under compulsion. I got Okay, Lord, you know, okay, okay, this is the time when they receive it. Okay, all right, yeah, all right, you know, nobody should give under compulsion. But it says in 2 Corinthians 9 7, but God loves a cheerful heart. We, sh- we should do things cheerfully for the Lord. And Peter is saying here, particularly as pastors, you should be doing it cheerfully, willingly, not under compulsion. And then the third thing that he says here is, specifically to elders slash pastors, is you should lead humbly. You should lead humbly. In verse 3, he says uh, there, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Now, clearly by saying these things, Peter thought that pastors should have significant authority in leading a church because if he thought that pastors were powerless or just hirelings by a church board, then he would not be giving a warning here about the potential to abuse their authority and power because that's what he's doing. He's saying here, caution For every church leader, you better be sure you're doing this not as lording authority over people, but by setting examples to people, therefore leading humbly. So he's not denying significant authority that pastors have in the local church, because that's why he's saying you better be cautious here that you never use your authority in an abusive way. But nevertheless, he urges here leading 
by example. Not lording it over people, but leading by example. This is very similar to something that Jesus said back in uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. Uh, He um, was asked by James and John, those two brothers, two of his apostles, uh, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, he was asked, hey, um, they come up to Jesus and say, we have a question, and we want you to do whatever we ask. I mean, it's pretty bold, right? We want you to do whatever, whatever uh, we ask. And, and Jesus says to him, well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. So these guys are having a power trip. And they're like, yeah, we're, we're kind of the original A-team. We're the, the original 12 apostles. And before the other 10 figure out what we're asking, we want to come to you first and ask if we can have positions of authority, one on your right and one on your left when you come into your glory. Wouldn't you love to just be a fly on a wall when Jesus like, is hearing them? And I would love to have seen Jesus' reaction when they asked that question. Was there a pregnant pause? Was, did he give them a look? Did he kind of like raise an eyebrow? Like, you know, I, but he responds by saying to them, you don't know what you ask. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? In other words, are you prepared to go through some of the suffering I'm about to go through? And they said to him, we are able. They have no idea what they're answering. And he said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, the other ten disciples heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself, and he said to them, so now picture this. So, so Jesus then gathers all the twelve. And by the way, I'm thinking the other ten are all upset, not because James and John asked the question, but because they got to Jesus first. You better believe it. These people, these 10, these 12 guys, they, they weren't the sharpest knife in the drawer. And so when they come together, Jesus uses this as a teaching moment. He goes, okay, listen, all 12 of you guys, just, just gather around the campfire here, make some s'mores. I got some stuff to say to you. And he says to them this, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lorded over them. You know, they, they, uh, they use their authority in an oppressive, abusive way. And their great ones exercise authority over them. He says, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's very counterintuitive, especially in our culture. The idea that leadership is really about servanthood. And I don't care whether you're in a position of leadership authority or whatever it might be. All of us are called to servanthood. All of us are called to serve one another in love. All of us are called to have a servant's heart. Now, years ago, um, Gail Ehrman was here speaking, and he made this statement uh, in our old building years ago, and uh, he made this statement that has always stuck with me about having a servant's heart. He says, here's how you will know if you have a servant's heart. Because everybody's like, yeah, as a Christian, I want to have a servant's heart, servant's heart, servant's heart. So we need to have servant's heart. Okay, and all of us can think we have a servant's heart, 
And I, I'll never forget, here, here's what he said. Here's how you can tell if you have a servant's heart. It's how you react when someone treats you like one. Mm, I heard some mm in the congregation. Yeah, how you react when someone treats you like a servant. Now, that isn't to say that, that, that people have liberty to walk all over you, okay? And unfortunately, some people will do that. That's not what I'm saying. It's just how do we respond Okay, because a real servant doesn't care about the notoriety. A real servant doesn't care about the attention. A real servant doesn't care about who knows. You just do it because it's it's just humbling and it's honoring to other people. It's respectful of other people. But how do you deal with it when you go unnoticed and when you go unappreciated? Did you do it only for the gratitude? Because a real servant-hearted person does it as unto the Lord, not because they get the thank you, not because they get the notoriety. So how do you react when someone treats you like one in that sense? Like, how do you react when someone doesn't acknowledge you, doesn't say thank you, doesn't appreciate what you do? Because then that's when you can really tell, did I do this with a servant's heart? Or did I do this because deep down inside I just wanted somebody to pay me a little attention or give me some gratitude or whatever it might be? And so here in this context, you know, Peter is saying, listen, as as pastors in particular, don't use your authority, lording it over those entrusted to you, but set the example. And I have to be honest with you, you know, there are times when I just uh, say to the Lord, I'd, I'd, rather, um, I'd rather sell computers because I, I know that then people don't necessarily look at me for an example because I don't necessarily always like feeling like I'm, you know, living in a glass house. I'm just being real with you. And, you know, I've said this before, but I get the looks like when I'm like when I'm at Costco. First of all, this is the look I get at Costco. Like you shop at Costco. That's it. That's what I get. And, you know, like I've got on a baseball cap and, you know, I've just got on, you know, whatever. And somebody's like, I can't I, you wear baseball hats. I can't even believe it. You know, and so it's funny the reaction I get. But then this is the second reaction I get. Mm, what's in your cart? Mm, mm-hmm. Pastor G, you know, what are you buying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's in your cart? Mm-hmm. Yeah, just checking it out. Yeah. Seeing if you're a godly example, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So I like to have fun. I like to look in your cart, you know, and I just like, ah, oh, what do you got going on? You know, what's your game? Hmm? What are you drinking? Mm, all right. But nevertheless, this is what we're called to be. It doesn't mean that every pastor is a perfect example. Please don't look at me. Please look at Jesus, right? Please look at Jesus. But nevertheless, we are supposed to recognize that with the responsibility of being a pastor goes the responsibility of living a life that um, at least points people somehow to Jesus as examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, he says here at the end, you will receive a crown of glory that does not fade away. So, Unless you're a pastor, you don't get a crown of glory. (laughs) Lead humbly. What is wrong with me? Listen, here's the good news. Everybody gets different. There are three types of crowns mentioned in the Bible. Crown of glory right here. There's also the crown of righteousness mentioned in 2 Timothy uh, 4 verse 8, which you get too. And also James 1, 12 and Revelation 2, 10 says about the crown of life. Three, Three types of crowns that we get. Crown of glory, crown of righteousness crown of life. But here's the reality, okay, including my own little, hopefully maybe there is some kind of little tiny crown of glory, but here's, here's the reality for all three of those that all of us, you know, get. 
in Revelation 4, it says we're all throw our crowns down at the feet of Jesus. It won't matter. Because but when we get to heaven, it's not going to be like, whoa, I can hardly hold my head up. Look at my crown. <laughs> Woo! Crown of glory. Woo! Because when we, because there's not going to be any of that. Can you imagine if there's competition over your crown? Because in Revelation 4, what it says is we end up just casting all of our crowns down. We are undone in the presence of Jesus. Nobody is wearing a crown. Everybody is undone. We're just throwing or casting our crowns down at the feet of Jesus. So as soon as you get it, you just, and don't, it won't even be a power struggle. Don't even think it will for a moment. It's going to be, okay, Jesus, here, you can have your crown back. It's just because we're going to be just so undone in the presence of the Lord. We are just going to be like, Lord, here, take the crown. I, I want nothing. I want no one except you. So as much as this looks like a little bonus that pastors get or we get all together, um, it's going down to the feet of Jesus anyway. All right, let's look on to uh, verse um, 5. Likewise, here's where, here's where you younger people get, get nailed a little bit. So uh, it's your turn. Likewise, you younger people... Submit yourself to your elders. Underline that every young person in your, in your Bibles right now. Every parent loves that verse too, don't you? You're going to put that on a three-by-five card and put that in your teenager's room, aren't you? Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. Okay, again, it's not a power trip. It's one another. And be clothed with humility. So in other words, he's saying here, humility extends to everyone. This is not just something that pastors have to uh, practice. This, is, this extends to everybody, no matter what your age, whether you're elder or whether you're younger or anywhere in between. He says, be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, you know, it's interesting, he, he does specifically refer here to younger people, and the reason may be because and I'm sure um, you would agree with me if you're older now, but probably when you were younger, you know, I, I may have disagreed with what I'm about to say. But basically, youth and immaturity, okay, often leads to a self-inflated view. We tend to think when we're younger that, you know, we're all that and we got everything figured out until you hit the reality of life. And you realize, I don't know as much as I thought I knew, and I don't have it all together as much as I thought I did. And so uh, perhaps he's addressing younger people for that very reason, because youth and immaturity often leads to an overinflated view of self. But he, in general, says to everybody here, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now he's quoting Proverbs 3.34. And again, it applies to everybody. And Peter's not the only one who quoted from Proverbs 3.34. James also did in James 4.6. James quotes this same proverb. So it's repeated a couple of times in the New Testament. And, you know, again, the bottom line is, do we want God to resist us or give us grace? Which side of that do you want to be on? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a no-brainer. Do we want God to resist us or do we want God to grace us? And I, I want and need God's grace every minute of every day, and therefore the challenge is if we want to be graced by God rather than resisted by God, we need to humble ourselves before God because God resists the proud. He resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And therefore, verse 6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you or lift you up 
in due time, verse 7, this is a great verse, verse 7, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. You've been listening to Pastor Gary Hamrick on Cornerstone Connection. Pastor Gary is making his way through the book of 1 Peter, where we will encounter thoughts like this one from 1 Peter 1, 6-7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelations of Jesus Christ. In just two short verses, Peter shifts the entire paradigm of suffering. First, he tells us that it's suffering for a little while and tells us that it has a purpose in purifying and testing our faith. Are you going through one of these trials? You can email us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. We would love to pray with you that your faith would be perfected through it. Cornerstone Connection is a ministry out of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. We have services Sunday mornings at 8.30, 10, and 11.45, and Wednesday evenings at 7. Come by and see us. For all the information you need, head over to cornerstoneconnection.cc. Once again, that website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. We're coming to the end of our time today, but we will be back again next time with more from Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know You're not alone Real love is calling Listen, truth opens up your eyes General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.